Welcome, everyone. Sorry for the absence of a bumper video counting us down. I can at least add that in if people would like. However, for today, we are going to be discussing Ken Wilson's book, Augustine's Conversion from Traditional Free Choice to what he refers to as non-free free will, which I find to be an odd title because it's, although he puts it in quotation marks, of course, it's not a quotation, as far as I'm aware, from Augustine or anybody else. As I mentioned earlier in the series, although Dan may appear in some of these episodes, this is not, I'm not speaking for Dan, and uh, Dan is quite capable of responding on his own, should he wish to do so. But I'm going ahead and moving forward in this interesting discussion of a fascinating topic. Then the topic is, of course, origin. So right now it's minimized, but I'm going to make it bigger and make myself a bit smaller. Here we go. And you can now see this is from page 66 of Dr. Wilson's book. Again, here's the actual book. This is, of course, a Facebook image of the book. And as you can see on this page, we've been discussing, uh, we already discussed the first, the top of this page, these quotations. We talked about this odd quotation from Philokalia 27 as sections 10 through 12 with only two lines of Greek text, all of which was really from the same section. We talked about how that seemed a little bit odd, but it is what it is. It's not from a different section of the Philokalia. And we also talked about how the Philokalia in a separate episode, we talked about how the Philokalia is an anthology created by Gregory and Basil, or perhaps just one of them in a later time, but from Origins works. So it's often referred to as Origins Philokalia. Just bear in mind that it's a work that's designed to discuss some themes that were of interest to other people, not necessarily the themes that were of most interest to origin. So picking up from where we had left off, where we had left off was the quotation from Philokalia 27. Now we pick up with Dr. Wilson's own words, and this time we plan to discuss uh, hopefully this paragraph, this theme saturates his writings. The next paragraph he exhaustively examines. And perhaps the first sentence of the following paragraph, so essentially this citation to the homily in Jeremiah 22, the citation of Philokalia 27.2, and first principles 2, 9, 6 through 7, which we're going to find is also another odd citation. But let's uh, let's take these things in turn. First of all, the nice thing about the first citation is that Origins Homilies on Jeremiah. This is the English translation by John Clark Smith. I'm not aware if there's any other English translations of the entire work. I was able to find bits and pieces quoted by people like William Good, but. I don't want to get down too far on that path. William Good was more concerned, I think, with Origen's discussion of scripture. Hold on a second while I ban a spammer. Let's see if we get that. There we go. So 
we will, uh, will not be discussing William Good's use of this work. But one of the interesting things about the work is, unlike a lot of Origen's works, most of these homilies on Jeremiah, and if you look at the title in the Fathers of the Church series, it's volume 97, uh, you'll see that it says homilies on Jeremiah and 1 Kings 28. And if you turn to your King James Bible or your ESV and you look for 1 Kings 28, you won't find it because it's Septuagint 1 Kings 28, which is 1 Samuel 28. And that particular homily is a homily of, that focuses on the interesting question to origin, anyway, of what was going on with the witch at Endor. If you may recall from that sermon, well, if you haven't, you probably haven't read the sermon, but if you remember the story of the witch at Endor, Saul, King Saul, goes to the witch and asks to speak with Samuel, who's now dead. And the witch summons forth a spirit that's allegedly Samuel. And Origen is puzzled by it because he doesn't want to say that this is just a demon pretending to be Samuel because he thinks that scripture requires that it actually is Samuel. And then he's saying, well, if it is Samuel, what's Samuel doing in hell or Hades as they translate it in this translation? What's Samuel doing in there? How come everybody's in Hades? How come Samuel's in Hades? And if Samuel is, then perhaps all of the uh, believers before Christ were down in Hades as well. And for origin, Hades doesn't mean just the place to the dead. It actually means a place of, seems like it means the place of suffering. So what's everybody doing down there before Christ? And he gets into that question. But that's not our question for today. Origen is an interesting writer. He has lots of interesting things to say. I kind of tabbed the parts I found interesting and you can see there's quite a lot of tabs in this particular book. But again, this is not the, uh, this is not designed to be an entire course on Origen, just highlighting some of the particular issues that come up in Dr. Wilson's arguments. So Dr. Uh, Wilson says this theme saturates his writings. Uh, again, I. That's a kind of throwaway statement, this saturates his writings. I suppose it's a throwaway statement because how can you establish that one way or another? Unless you're going to say that it's a statement that only comes up, this theme only comes up occasionally. That might be too extreme. Also of interest, what does the, what does he mean, this theme? Uh, well, perhaps we, we can discuss that more, but if he means that, free will comes up from time to time in Origen's writings. I don't think we could have a big objection to that. If he's referring to last statement, he said he also recognizes problematic scriptures. He quotes from the Greek and then he says, this theme saturates his writings. If he means that the theme of problematic scriptures saturates Origen's writings, that's certainly true. But I assume it's something about his free choice scriptural arguments that supposedly saturate his writings. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that that's, I, I mean, personally, I wouldn't say it saturates his writings, but again, it's a little bit of a uh, quality um, judgment call. And what it what saturates to one person might be it comes up from time to time to another person. Looking, for example, just taking this, uh, I don't know, this is a work of about, I say about 300 pages of Origins writings. 
most of which is translated from Greek. There's a few where it's translated from Jerome's tran Latin translation because there isn't a Greek uh, copy that we still have. And going with the editor or translator's uh, summary, free will comes up a few times in the text. So the editor here finds it in homilies 5, 17, 18, twice, 20, 28, and then in one of the Catena uh, quotations, Catena uh, 67, uh, and then one comment about Christ's own free will in homily one. So it's there in a few places. Does it saturate? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to focus too much on that particular topic. I'm going to take a quick pause here. I see Jamie is providing some comments. I want to read what they are and see if I can address them now rather than waiting until later in the episode. Seems to be the case regarding the early church fathers, often in opposition to the Gnostics. They seem to say it is like Luke 16. Let's see what you mean by Luke 16. If you're, if you're still listening live and you have more clarification what you mean by, I think it's like Luke 16, I'm interested. The, the unjust steward in, in Luke 16 or or the Lazarus in Luke 16. Uh, but in any event, there is a, uh, there's a different view of Hades, which is just that it's the place of the dead, which is an easier way to reconcile this problem is just to say that, uh, that Samuel was in the place of the dead, not the place of the cursed. But for Origen, the problem is that the spirit comes up and that would mean that the spirit was down. And for origin, if the spirit's down, then it's in the place of punishment, not the place of uh, happiness. I think that's the problem. Protestant tradition seems to ignore this issue, perhaps due to the issue of indulgences and the issue of purgatory. So that's an interesting question about the uh, issue of indulgences and purgatory. Uh, origin does have a lot to say about fire and he is, um, He's very eager to suggest that people are purified through fire, although he doesn't propose a place called purgatory or anything like that. But he is, some of his teachings, although certainly not all of them, would, would line up nicely with later teachings that, that describe this idea of a purgatory. Uh, let's see. Can you remind us what year its origin was life? If I recall correctly, it was something like 185 to, I could double check. I think it was 185 to 235, 254, 185 to 254, approximately. And those are round numbers. Uh, yep. Uh, regarding the intermediate state. So, yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of the parable of Lazarus, uh, but again, I, I would have, it would be, in, I actually haven't checked to see what Origen says about Lazarus. He, Origen is a very interesting guy. And for Lazarus, because it's a parable, he wouldn't feel compelled to treat it historically and to treat it as though it's the uh, it's something else to be considered. Thanks very much for your comment, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Uh, let's see. A good resource on those is Scroll Pub on the internet, Scroll Publishing. David Berko. I'm not sure. All right, so let me continue with, right, uh, with what's 
Dr. Wilson's talking about here because the his first point is this theme saturates his writings. Does he talk about free will? Sure, he does. Does it saturate his writings? I don't know if I'd go that far. But if he does saturate his writings, then there should be lots of good stuff for Dr. Wilson to pick up on to establish his point. But here's an, a problematic statement. The problematic statement is this next couple sentences. God does not coerce humans or directly influence individuals, but instead only invites. Why? Because God desires willing lovers, just as Paul asked Philemon to voluntarily act in goodness, which Origen expounded in homily on Jeremiah 22. So let's take a peek at this homily and see what exactly Origen has to say. I think I've got this as the next image and I apologize, the screen size is probably a bit small. So here's what he actually says. And this is from, should I put it on here? I think two page, homily 20, page 223 of this particular translation. For the issue, as you're going to see, is this phrase, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. <clears throat> because this creates a, a little bit of a headache for Origen. Origen doesn't like, Origen is interested in ascribing this deception to God for other reasons, for overarching thematic reasons. But now he is challenged because he has to somehow explain how can it be that God is a deceiver? That doesn't sound right. Origen knows it doesn't sound right. We ourselves might find this hard to stomach. And there are some interesting lengths to which Origen's willing to go. And I'm trying to recall now whether whether the uh, whether all the materials there. If it isn't there, I can always uh, bring it up another time. For those who are interested in the you know the perpetual Calvin uh, versus uh, the Church Fathers, uh, in terms of you know the acceptance by Protestants of the shorter canon, and Origen here in this homily at, at uh, I don't know I think it's section seven, ends up quoting uh, the story of Judith as though it's canonical. At least it seems that he does. So there's some you know that will be. Good news, I guess, for those who, are, who find Origen to be a compelling source of authority on what's canonical and what's not. But when it comes to this particular homily, let's see what he has to say. He says, "For let's inquire, uh, but of all the comments, uh, says, but all of these comments are for me a preface because the beginning of the reading from Jeremiah is expressed in this way. You deceived me, and I was deceived. For let us inquire whether just as the wrath, which is e evil for all, is perhaps the reproving work of God, and the anger, which is severe for all, is perhaps what is called the educative work of God, and while the regret of all of us signifies weakness of reasoning of the person prior to the regret, for God, his regret does not, uh, does not signify anything of God but the regret is taken for the things outside him. We must understand that the deceit of God is of another kind from our deceit with which we deceive. What then is the deceit of God of which the prophet after he understood spoke 
when he stopped being deceived, after he had after he knew the benefit from the deception, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. So I pause to just comment here. This is the first paragraph of section two. This is the section that's quoted by Dr. Wilson. This first in this first section, what he's setting up is he has already argued that when it comes to God repenting or regretting these kind of terminology, that it's that God does not mean that the way the human beings mean it. It's like he compares it to a person talking to a child and the same way you use kind of baby language and you speak down to a child and you kind of explain things to him in ways that are not you know, perfectly accurate, but convey truth. He's saying that God does something similar. So it's language of accommodation. And so he's, he's building on that idea here and saying that the deceit of God is not like human deceit. Now, here's the interesting part. So this is in 22, uh, 20, homily 20, section two, subsection two, or paragraph two of section two. It's, he says this, and first I'll make use of the Hebrew tradition, which has come to us by means of someone who was fleeing on account of the faith of Christ and on account of having advanced beyond the law and who had come where we live. And the translator, and here's something I haven't uh, troubled myself to verify, but here he says that this is the son of a rabbi to whom Origen refers in his letter to Africanus, section seven. Uh, I haven't verified it, but it seems credible that this, uh, this association, that this is when he says that there's a Hebrew tradition that was received from this person, he's talking about a specific person and who, who he says had faith in Christ and it got beyond the law, but therefore had to flee and it come to where we live. Presumably that means to Alexandria, Egypt or somewhere around there. Now he was saying something which appeared either a myth or a discourse, which we could introduce those who hear, and it, it's going to continue on the next page, but I just pause to note here. He says, myth here is used in a platonic sense, a story which reveals an idea of some inaccessible truth. So it's a it's kind of a, a story, a Hebrew story, a Jewish story that Origen thinks is an interesting and helpful story. He's quoting though somebody else. This is not Origen's own story. This is something he's giving credit to a the son of a rabbi, someone who is of the Hebrew tradition. Let me continue to the next page here. We're on page 224. He says that this would be useful. I suppose I should go back for a moment. <clears throat> a, a discourse which we could introduce to those who hear, you, have, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. He was saying then something such as this. God does not tyrannize, but rules. And when he rules, he does not coerce, but encourages. And he wishes those under him he wishes that those under him yield themselves willingly to his direction so that the good of someone may not be according to compulsion, but according to his free will. This is what Paul was un with understanding was saying to Philemon in the letter to Philemon concerning Onesimus, so that your good be not according to compulsion, but according to free will. Thus the God of the universe could make what is supposed to, uh, what is supposed a good in us so that we would give alms from compulsion and we would be temperate from compulsion, 
but he has not wished this. Hence, not from reluctance or out of compulsion, he enjoins us to do what we do, so that what occurs is from free will. In some, God seeks a way, in a manner of speaking, whereby one would want to do with free will what God wishes. The tradition then also was saying to me something like this. He wants to send Jeremiah, who prophesies to all of the nations and before all of the nations to the people, but since the prophecies have had something quite gloomy for the imparted punishments with which each according to his deserts will be punished. And he knew the choice of the prophet for who does not want to prophesy to the people of Israel what's bad. For this reason, he arranged to say, take this cup and make all the nations to whom I commissioned you drink and so on. Now I pause here. There's more discussion about Jeremiah and he's turning it back, but you'll notice this section is, has an intermixture of the, this Jewish myth or this kind of Jewish sayings or something like this and Origen's own thought. That's my first observation. Now, second observation is, I'll remind you the wording that Dr. Wilson said, and I'll come back to it in a minute to put it on the screen, but I'm leaving this up, what Origen has on the screen for you now, just so you can see and compare. Because remember, he said, God does not coerce humans or directly influence individuals, but instead only invites. So that isn't an accurate summary of what Origen is saying here. Yes, he is talking about a difference between compulsion and free will, but not in terms of invitation. And notice as well that we're talking about a very specific case. This is not, uh, talking about the general case, because Origen, or perhaps his uh, Hebrew uh, spokesman here, says that God is able to insist on these things. So, but he, the examples he provides are examples of temperance and giving alms, things that are voluntary, not, there's not a rule if you, I, I point this out because it's kind of important. For Ken Wilson's point of view, when he talks about an invitation, he's talking about, you know, fundamental obedience to, I think he's intending us to understand something like fundamental obedience to the gospel. But that's not what Origen has in mind at all. Origen's example here is giving alms. Giving alms is something that's a voluntary practice. Christians aren't required to give alms. That's something they can do voluntarily. And God is pleased when we do voluntarily do these things. But it isn't a mandatory requirement. That's, it's like those what are called free will offerings under the law. Under the law, there were some offerings you had to give because of sin. And there's some offering that you give freely, not under compulsion. But notice that he says, it says, thus the God of the universe could make what is su uh, supposed a good in us so that we would give alms from compulsion. He's saying that God of the universe could do that. Not that it's impossible. And of course, ultimately, uh, as I'm pointing out here, the, the idea is a distinction between imposing rules and encouraging people to do something good of freely of their own accord, not under the guidance of rules. So notice how it says, God does not tyrannize 
but rules, and when he rules, he doesn't coerce, but encourages. So the point is that, that God is not imposing laws and penalties on people, for example, not giving alms, that there's some punishment if you don't give alms. No, but he's encouraging people to give alms. So yes, he has an idea of free will, but it's not an idea of free will that has anything to do with the difference between uh, you know, determinism or liber uh, compatible free will versus li libertarian free will. It's just a general sense of free will that we all accept, even determinists accept, even a hard determinist accepts that there's things that are done by compulsion, meaning under threat of some consequence, and, uh, and by free will, meaning based on our own internal motivations, not based on external motivations. So although origin may have some leanings one way or another, this is not a great example of that. And this doesn't support the argument for which he's being cited here. Uh, as I said, he goes on here to talk about Jeremiah and that he doesn't want to bring up this threat of the, the cup of punishment. And he goes on to say, uh, he doesn't, he says, since then it seemed to be one way and happened him in another. And for this reason, he then said, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. Note the resemblance, he says, to this discussion in Isaiah. For that prophet who does not know what he will be ordered to say to the people, hears God say, or according to what is written. And then he writes there, since then he did not know what he would prophesy and that he would threaten such things to the people. He said, behold, here I am, send me. For this reason, he said in later passages, the voice of one saying, cry. And he did not respond as one willing to do what was ordered, but he said, what will I cry? For he acted cautiously, lest again he hear something similar to the former prophecy. And uh, in these words, he heard nothing against Israel. So the, con the concern that Jeremiah has in this deceived me and uh, I was deceived was to get was God's desire to get people to do things out of their freedom, out of their own free will, as distinct from ordering them to under threat of punishment, not as distinct from ordering the universe. And I'll just note uh, for the moment there, Origen does have some idea of providence. What exactly he means by that, perhaps as a topic for another time. Let's jump back to the text here. So. I think what we've seen is, oh, and I'll add here. So he did say voluntarily, um, and he does mention Philemon. So I'll just go quickly back to that point. Notice that it does say, this is what Paul with understanding was saying to Philemon in the letter to Philemon concerning Onesimus. But that's the entire statement about Philemon. He's just saying, what you just heard, that's what Paul was saying with understanding to Philemon. And if we come back here, he says, uh, which origin expounded in this section? I, I don't think that it's accurate to say that origin expounded it there. But again, maybe this is another case of just taking a word that means something. Maybe he had a word like said 
and he just put in a in a thesaurus and got another word that can kind of mean said and that's what he put it in didn't mean anything specifically by the word he picked here now he the next sentence says he exhaustively examines god hardening pharaoh's heart and uh oh i'll pause a second i noticed uh Patrick has an additional comment. He says, one thing I have noticed about Catholic theologians is that their interpretations seem to be influenced by a loyalty to a religious system, its authorities and traditions. This prevents true sincerity in interpretation in that they can't interpret what the author is saying without the lens of all of this other religious stuff in between the text and them. So some, some Roman Catholics fall into that trap and others don't. I think it's dangerous when they uh, when some do, I will point out, um, uh, this like this uh, the translator of this. I don't know his religious affiliation, but the publisher is the Catholic University of America, which you know typically is run by Roman Catholics and manages a lot of times to avoid this kind of problem, or at least to minimize it. There is a natural tendency, of course, for people to kind of hope for hope to find certain things in what they're reading. But there is there is a tendency in certain circles of Roman Catholic apologetics to find, to try to find the entire, you know, usually it's like a Tridentine style Roman Catholicism, to try to find that in the first century, in the second century, in the third century. And it's, really, it's just not there. Origen, uh, maybe another time I'll discuss some of these other quotations from this book. But at one point in here, Origen is talking about the relative, um, the, about the fact that kind of the people who have more responsibility have more duty. And he mentions how, you know, the, uh, a lay person has a certain amount of duty, a deacon has a certain amount of duty, a priest has a certain amount of duty. And, uh, where he ends up going when he wants to say somebody who has uh, authority over the whole church, he doesn't go to the Bishop of Rome. He goes to the apostles. <laughs> so, and specifically the apostle Paul and the idea of that, you know, that Paul is the one an example of someone who has authority over the whole church doesn't fit at all with Roman Catholicism. It, at best, you'd have to say that it's just an odd choice if, if origin were Roman Catholic but he's, he's not. Let's see. <clears throat> Another comment from Jamie. When I hear providence, I think of him trying to affirm libertarian free will, but a robust sense of God's providence in human affairs. Uh, I Well, maybe another time we'll, we'll get into that. I don't recall right now whether, whether that comes, that specific question comes up in this response. It may come up a little bit in if I get a chance to do an episode specifically on these homilies on Jeremiah and discussing some of the other features of that, of those homilies, there's a couple of discussions of providence, but providence for origin providence, it's an odd situation, but let me, I, I will think, I think it makes sense to add one, uh, Let's see, maybe it would make sense to add one or two additional comments from homily 20 uh, to highlight some of what's said here because, or maybe not from homily uh, 20, 
bot from I'm trying to see where I can find it. Well, maybe I'll save that for another time. I think there's some interesting discussion of the relationship of free will and God's providence or God's foreknowledge. And it does relate back to, it's not an easy question to tackle and Origin's way of tackling it is not exactly the same as, as ours might be. But let's, let's focus for a moment. Let me try to focus for a moment on Pharaoh's, uh, it says the, this question of Pharaoh's hardened heart says he exa exhaustively examines God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It is a question that comes up a lot for Origen. He does, he's not, to say it saturates his writing might be excessive, but he certainly does seem to bring up Pharaoh a number of times. He says a hardened heart results indirectly from God's sovereign actions, not a violation of a human choice through divine manipulation. So the short answer to this, uh, and I think we'll come to the actual text in a moment, but my short answer here is when he says it's a, a hardened heart results indirectly from God's sovereign actions, not a violation of a human choice through divine manipulation. I'm not sure why those are the two options that Dr. Rosen has in mind, because for origin, the issue is whether is not whether God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And for Origen, the solution seems to be something like the solution that we talk about in, that sometimes people talk about where God is like a bright, bright like, like, the, uh, like the sun that melts the wax, but hardens the clay. So, the difference is not in the sun, the difference is in the wax or the clay. Now that's that explains a difference in how God, God's single action can have different effects on different people. The question, that would still be a direct result of God's sovereign action though. So to say it's only indirectly resulting was, is an odd choice. And the question isn't whether it's a violation of human choice through divine manipulation. Although Origen does have some interesting comments for people who have the idea that some people are just natively bad and other people are natively good. Origen has some interesting questions for those people about why, do, why would such a person need to be hardened? And I can't recall if it's gonna come up in this discussion, hopefully it will. Uh, and, you know, if so, great. Continuing on with Dr. Wilson's comments, he says, God's actions on behalf of Israel resulted in Pharaoh's hard heart, which he compares to God tempting Job through Satan. I guess we'll see the, the comparison, if any, but uh, we'll have to come to that in a moment. And then it says, a violation of human free choice could not have occurred in Scripture because that contradicted all three pillars of truth, scripture, the churches, regula fidei, and reason. And I think we may have some trouble finding these three pillars in the section he's citing. But the, uh, we'll, we'll try, we'll try our best to find them. Uh, but if we don't, then I'm not sure 
<laughs> what we're going to do with that. I would say, if you remember last time, there was some insertion in the Latin translation as distinct from the Greek in a particular section where something like a rule of faith of the church distinct from other things was inserted by the Latin translator. But let's just see if this actually comes up. And then it says, furthermore, any direct influence upon human desires would render God unjust. We'll see about whether, you know, what Origen actually says about that when we come to reading this section of the Philokalia. Let's see if I can pull that up for you. I believe it's here. So, and I'm not sure if I can make that bigger on the screen. I apologize if it's hard to read. Uh, but this is the first page, and there's a little bit on a second page. But I'll read the stuff on the first page first. This is the what uh, Ken Wilson cites in support of his assertion that, well, we'll come back quickly to the assertion. So instead, he's, his assertions are that a hardened heart results indirectly from God's sovereign actions, not a violation of human choice, that God's actions are comparable to God tempting Job through Satan, and that a violation of human free choice couldn't have occurred because that contradicted three pillars of truth, which are scripture, reason, and the church's rule of faith. Furthermore, any direct influence upon human desires would render God unjust. So those are the uh, those are the claims that he's making about this text. And let's see what the text actually has to say about the subject, either for or against what Dr. Wilson is saying. So it says, away then with such conceptions of the divine nature as we are investigated in the question before us, they are torn to shreds. But inasmuch as there, uh, there are those who advance the plea of natural constitution. So this is, the position that he's fighting against here is a position of people having a natural constitution. And that natural constitution is, they're kind of, Bad, from, bad by nature. Supposing that some persons have been created to perdition, so there's there, these bad people that are created to, uh, to destruction. Interestingly, I will point out that this, this does sound like a characterization one might make of a Calvinist type of position. But in any event, uh, whether he has that in mind or not, we'll come to, we'll come to address in a moment. And also keep in mind, just because something is sounds like a characterization of a Calvinist opinion doesn't make it a Calvinist opinion, or nor does it mean that Origen had in mind those same opinions. That said, he says, uh, they adduce these passages in support of their views, maintaining that their contention is clearly proved by the fact that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the Lord. Let's ask them a few questions. A man is created to perdition. He would never be able to grow in goodness because his original nature neutralizes his effort to obtain to virtue. So basically what Origen is saying here is, yeah, if, there's, if these are people who are somehow naturally bent on wickedness, as distinct from other kinds of people who are, don't have this nature and who can go on and do righteousness, which is, uh, this is not, by the way, this is not what Calvinism teaches, that there's some people that are born with a bad nature and there's some people that are born with a good nature. But this is a position that 
uh, like I said, sometimes people characterize Calvinism as though, as though it said that. He doesn't. Anyway, he is addressing this other position, this position where some people have this bad nature that he says that a man created to perdition would never be able to grow in goodness because his original nature neutralizes his efforts to attain virtue. What need then was there for Pharaoh, who was, as you say, a son of perdition, to be hardened by God so that he should not let the people go? So this is the challenge. We actually see this sometimes from uh, current day provisionists, I think, will make some similar argument. They'll say, well, if everybody is totally depraved, why does God need to harden Pharaoh's heart? And uh, perhaps it's this argument comes from as either a misunderstanding of the Calvinist position or an attempt to caricature. It's not always clear where it comes from, but there's a similarity to the argument. For you tell us that if he had not been hardened, he would have let them go. And uh, you know, this thus far, by the way, I would agree with Origen's opponents that if Pharaoh had not been hardened, he would have let the people go. And I think that's kind of the obvious meaning. But let's continue on. Further, we should like an answer to another question. What would Pharaoh have done if he had not been hardened? So you can see there's a lot of uh, beautiful complexity and redundancy to origin. But uh, you notice he said, for you tell us that if he had not been hardened, he would let them go, and he would like another answer to the question, but it seems like it's the same question. It says, if he had let them go, not being hardened, he had not a nature doomed to perdition. So what his argument is, is if he needed to be hardened, then he didn't have this pervasively bad nature. And if he did need to be hardened, uh, so therefore, if he did have a pervasively bad nature, then he, you wouldn't have needed the hardening in the first place. So sort of a, he's saying it's a catch-22. Either he's so bad that he doesn't need to be hardened, or uh, he needed to be hardened because he, he wasn't really so bad. It says, if he had not let them go, the hardening of his heart was superfluous, for he would have just the same have refused to let them go, even if he had not been hardened. And what did God do to control his reason when he hardened him? Now, this is an interesting question, and it's one that does you know, seem to be a, a problem for people who are saying that Pharaoh is from these constitutionally evil people, and on top of that, he was hardened. But what an odd question for someone who thinks that God's hardening didn't control Pharaoh's reason. Notice it says, what did God do to control his reason when he hardened him? And how is it that he blames him saying, because you disobeyed, behold, I'll slay your firstborn. Now here we get into a comment that is connected with the kind of libertarian freedom and responsibility debate. This is, you know, basically Origen's argument is, well, if God took away his free will, then why is God blaming him? If that's what hardening is, and God just took away his free will, then why would God blame him? And Calvinists have an answer to that. But let's continue on with what Origen has to say here. He says, can it be that he who hardens, hardens one already hard? 
Clearly the hard is not hardened, but the change is from softness to hardness. And softness of heart is, according to the scripture, praiseworthy, as we have often observed. So origins, uh, in a, orange, origin has taken a path down here that's going to be a little bit tricky. So origin saying, if Pharaoh's heart was hardened, that means before it wasn't hard, it was soft, and being soft is good. So this is even more problematic for people who are saying that uh, Pharaoh is inherently bad. He says, let them, therefore, tell us whether Pharaoh turns from good to bad, further God, whether God is blame, in blaming Pharaohs, blames him without cause or not without cause. If without cause, how is he any longer wise and just? If not without cause, Pharaoh was responsible for his sins of disobedience, and if he was responsible, he had not a nature doomed to perdition. So uh, if, th now this is a, uh, this seems to be the crux of Origen's argument, which is if someone is, has a nature doomed to perdition, such that he just can't do anything right, then he shouldn't be blamed for those things. This is a point, by the way, where we might disagree with Origen's argument, but this is what Origen's saying. We must certainly ask another question because the apostle pushing these arguments to their full conclusion says, so he recognizing that the apostle Paul picks up this argument and he says, so then he has mercy on whom he will and whom he will, he hardens. You will say unto me, why does he still find fault for who withstands his will? Who we ask is, is it that hardens and has mercy? The hardening surely does not belong to one God and the having mercy to a different one if we follow the apostolic utterance, but both are attributed to the same God. So again, this seems to be a response to people, perhaps, who want to propose a different God for the Old Testament and a, and a different God for the New Testament. I don't know for sure the whole context of Origen's dispute. We don't have enough background material in every case to address that. And uh, as I said, well, let me let me focus instead of on, on the other things. Let me just focus on this particular point. So he he asks uh, this question. It has to be the same God, and that, that's his answer to that question. It says either then they who in Christ find mercy belong to, and um, here we go to the next page, either those who in, in Christ find mercy belong to him who hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it is idle for our opponents to invent any other God than, as they allow him to be, the good God, who not only has mercy, but also hardens, or he would no longer be, as they suppose, even good. So let's come back quickly now having read this entire section, uh, there's nothing here about three pillars of truth. There's nothing about direct influence of God uh, on God, uh, rendering on, on human desires, rendering God unjust. There's no mention of Job here. There's uh, nothing about human manipulation. The, the strongest point would be to say that there's at least a place here where origin seems to suggest that if people have a 
natural predisposition towards evil that they're not responsible for evil. But ultimately, this section doesn't actually address the points that for which it's being cited. Let's just see quickly what these other comments. Thank you, Jamie, for the comments that are ongoing. I can't always respond to them instantly. You know how Pharaoh would respond, but is that causal? I think he wants to say yes, but not by necessity. Uh, well, this particular section doesn't seem to directly address that at all. This is just addressing the fact that Pharaoh went from soft to hard, and that it wasn't it was the one who true God who did it. Did Pharaoh need to be hardened to do what God wanted? I think that's a valid question, and the answer is that he did. Uh, it did what God knew it would harden further, but it wasn't by necessity. God proved his rebellion. I'm, I'm always puzzled when people say not by necessity, what exactly they, what mechanism they have in mind. God's act, intervention actions are, or what they are, but we don't, they're not always told exactly how God does what he does. Just as one who pushes the buttons of their familiar interlocutor, I don't know if that was a reference to how God could do it, um, God free to do it lots of different ways. Uh, sounds like he's battling Marcion. It sounds like, you know, it does sound a little bit like the position he's cornering them in might have, you know, tones or shades of that. And keep in, keep in mind, this is, as I said, from Follow Kalia 27, the, what we just read. And Suppose what we should suppose I should check which what's the actual source of that. But my recollection is that Philocalia 27 is fragments from uh, let me see let me see if I have it handy. Uh, I am not sure what it's fragments from, but it is, you know, Philocalia 27 does discuss Exodus 10, 27, and uh, for the moment, I'll just leave it at that. I, I would, I'm not a big fan of this kind of citation that doesn't end up uh, directly supporting the argument that, that's being made, but let's continue. He's, the next thing he says is, origin denies salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit, citing uh, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now this is just a really, really strange uh, quotation. It's, uh, it's a strange quotation for lots of reasons. The main reason it's strange is, uh, first of all, it's strange that He's citing two sections of first principles, book two, chapter nine, for a phrase that's a quotation from scripture. And he's alleging that this is cited to establish that salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit, which 
one might expect from a Calvinistic exegete, perhaps. Uh, but let's let's explore this a bit. So as you can see, this is going to be section six and section seven. Section seven is where it says this, Jacob have I loved, but he's have I hated, I've bold and underlined it. Uh, section six doesn't directly address this, but we'll read through and see what it says and uh, and consider what what his arguments are. Now, this is obviously a different work from uh, the material from which Philokalia was taken, although parts of Philokalia are taken from on first principles, but not... Uh, but this is not, the, the 27 is not from there, as far as I recall. But let's, continue, let's read what Origen has to say and I'll kind of respond to Origen as we go. We have, uh, we however, although but men, not to nourish the insolence of the heretics by our silence, will return to their objections, such answers as occur to us, so far as our abilities enable us. We are frequently shown by those declarations which we're able to produce from the Holy Scriptures that God, the creator of all things, is good and just and all-powerful. So, uh, you know, in answer to Jamie's comment about maybe this is, you know, contending with Marcion, it does sound like an anti-Marcionite argument because, you know, a Marcionite would, might say that the God who created things is an evil demiurge, some, something like that. But let's continue on. When he, will, in the beginning, created those beings which he desired to create, that is, rational natures, he had no other reason for creating them than on account of himself, i.e. his own goodness. As he himself then was the cause of the existence of those things which were to be created, in whom there was neither any variation, nor change, nor want of power, he created all whom he made equal and alike, because there was in himself no reason for producing variety and diversity. But since those rational creatures themselves as we have frequently shown, and will yet show in the proper pace, we're endowed with the power of free will. So perhaps this is the reason why the two sections are cited, although it's odd, the summary that's provided is very odd, but you do see there's some discussion of free will here. They were endowed with free, the power of free will. This freedom of will incited each one either to progress by imitation of God or reduced him to failure through negligence. And this, as we have already stated, is the cause of the diversity among rational creatures, deriving its origin not from the will or judgment of the creator, but from the freedom of the individual will. Now God, who deemed it just to arrange his creatures according to their merit. Now hold on just a second. I, I pause here. It says, now God, who deemed it just to arrange his creatures according to their merit. And we were just cited this text to say, he denies salvation could ever be attained by one's own merit. But let's continue. Brought down these different understandings into the harmony of one world that he might adorn, as it were, one dwelling in which there were ought to be not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some indeed to honor and others to dishonor. That's a reference, by the way, to Romans 9. With those different vessels or souls or understandings, and these are the causes, in my opinion, why that world presents the aspect of diversity while divine providence continues to regulate each individual according to the variety of his movements or of his feelings and purpose. So 
there's a mention here of divine providence. If you're looking on the screen, I apologize for the small size of the words, but hopefully they're visible. It's about seven or eight lines from the bottom. Divine providence is both words are capitalized there. Uh, high truth defenders. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're just joining in the conversation, I'm reading from Origin, not agree with Origin, just analyzing Origin in response to Dr. Wilson's claims about Origin. Uh, so he has a place for divine providence here, and this divine providence, in some way, regulates each individual. But it seems like, if I'm reading Origin correctly here, that for Origin, divine providence is somewhat reactive and responsive to the individual rather than actually controlling the destiny of the individual. But, uh, you know, that that's my initial impression. So his idea of pro divine providence is if you do something wicked, you get rewarded with punishment. And if you do what's righteous, you get rewarded with blessing, kind of like karma for uh, people who hold to that idea. That's what it seems to be his understanding of providence here. But it says, on which account the creator will neither appear to be unjust in distributing for the causes already mentioned to everyone according to his merits. He will not appear to be unjust in distributing to everyone according to his merits. Nor will the happiness or unhappiness of each one's birth or whatever be the condition that falls to his lot be deemed accidental, nor will different creators or souls of different natures be believed to exist. So there's a lot to unpack here, but the different creators, that does sound like one of these, uh, I want to say Marcionite type uh, views, that there's different creators, also souls of different natures. This is the same error that we were seeing addressed previously. Like There's these souls that are evil souls that just do evil all the time as distinct from the good souls that don't necessarily do evil all the time. He rejects both of those ideas. And he says that there's divine providence, but he nevertheless says that the creator will not be unjust for distributing to everyone according to his merits. And uh, he He does say, he makes this comment about, nor will the happiness or unhappiness of each one's birth or whatever be the condition that falls to his lot be deemed accidental. So he does seem to acknowledge that God has some purpose in that. And that perhaps also connects with his idea of divine providence. But he doesn't seem to expound on that here. Uh, and so it's a little bit hard to know, but we can continue because he does, he himself continues. This is section six. We can continue on to section seven. Section seven says, but even Holy Scripture does not appear to me to be altogether silent on the nature of this secret. As when the Apostle Paul, in discussing the case of Jacob and Esau, says, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works. But of him who calls, it was said, the elder shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And that's the section that Ken Wilson quoted. Although 
again, I'm not sure why why the quotation marks were provided in the way that he did, uh, but it, it is what it is. And after that, he answered, answers himself and says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And that he might furnish us with an opportunity of inquiring into these matters and of ascertaining how these things do not happen without a reason, he answers himself and says, God forbid, may it never be. <clears throat> For the same question, as it seems to me, which is raised concerning Jacob and Esau, may be raised regarding all celestial and terrestrial creatures, and even those of the lower world as well. And in like manner, it seems to me that as he there says, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, so it might also be said of all other things, when they were not yet created, neither yet had done any good or evil, that the decree of God according to the election may stand, that, as certain think, some things on the one hand were created heavenly, some on, on the other earthly, and others, again, beneath the earth, not of works, as they think, but of him who calls. What shall we say then, if these things are so, is there unrighteousness with God, God forbid? And as therefore, when the scriptures are carefully examined regarding Jacob and Esau, it is not found to be unrighteousness with God that it should be said before they were born or had done anything in this life, the elder shall serve the younger. And as it is found not to be unrighteousness that even in the womb, Jacob supplanted his brother, if we feel that he was worthily beloved by God, according to the deserts of his previous life, so as to be deserve, uh, so as to deserve to be preferred before his brother. So also it is with regard to heavenly creatures. Let me pause here, because this is a, a very key difference from what you might expect. Remember, we were told that Origen denies salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit. And he says that this is supported by cite, citing this section of Romans 9, or perhaps Micah. I'm not sure which, uh, which he has in mind, but the bold and underlined section on the screen. But in fact, the solution that's offered here by origin, or at least by... I'm trying to remember if this is something where we have it in, in Greek or not. But in any event, this, this edition that we have suggests that the solution is <clears throat> it's not all these things where it might seem unfair isn't unfair if he was worthily beloved by God according to deserts of his previous life. So as to deserve to be preferred before his brother, And then he goes on to say, so, uh, so also it is with regard to heavenly creatures, if we notice that diversity was not the original condition of the creature, but that owing to causes that have previously existed, a different office is prepared by the creator for each one in proportion to the degree of his merit. On this ground, indeed, that each one in respect of having been created by God and understanding or rational spirit has, according to the movements of his mind and the feelings of his soul, gained for himself a greater or less amount of merit and has become either an object of love to God or else one of dislike to him. While nevertheless, some of those who are possessed of greater merit are ordained to suffer with others for the adorning of the state of the world and for the discharge of duty 
to creatures of a lower grade in order that by this means they themselves may be participators in the endurance of the creator. According to the words of the apostle, for the creature who was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. And I, I pause again to say, how on earth is that a, a denying salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit? I, I would agree that one can't obtain salvation that way, but that is not the argument at all that, that Origen is making here. Origen is saying that these, the solution to God loving Jacob more than Esau and giving him all these other benefits and saying the elder will serve the younger and arranging things is based on uh, mer previous merits. This is, you know, quite distinct. But let's continue on. It says, uh, this is, uh, if you're following along, it's at footnote 2235 is the place we stopped. Keeping in view then the sentiment expressed by the apostle when speaking of the birth of Esau and Jacob, he says, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. I think it right that this same sentiment should be carefully applied to the case of all other creatures. Because, as we formerly remarked, the righteousness of the Creator ought to appear in everything. And this, it appears to me, will be seen more clearly at last if each one, whether of celestial or terrestrial or infernal beings, be said to have the causes of his diversity in himself and antecedent to his bodily birth. For all things were created by the word of God and by his wisdom and were set in order by his justice and by the grace of his compassion, he provides for all men and encourages all to the use of whatever remedies may lead to their cure and incites them to salvation. And, uh, oh, I have a footnote here that I provided. I wonder if I have others. Uh, I'll I'll come back to that in a second, the, the footnote. But I pause here to say, once again, this allegation that origin denies salvation can never be obtained by one's own merit, citing this passage and, and citing this section of the first principles to support that idea is, I, I'm not sure, there's just, it's bizarre as a citation. I don't know his basis for thinking this. I, I can only speculate what makes him think that this is Origen's position as expressed in the sections he's citing. It, it just doesn't have, it has no clear connection to the reality of what Origen wrote there. It, and I don't agree with what Origen wrote. I don't find it defensible at all. But let me point out the, uh, the footnote 2224. There it says, the original of this passage is found in Justinian's epistle to Menas, Patriarch of, Canson, uh, Con Patriarch of Constantinople. In that beginning, which is cognizable by the understanding, God, by his own will, caused to exist as great a number of intelligent beings as was sufficient. For we must say that the power of God is infinite, is, excuse me, for we must say that the power of God is finite and not, under pretense of praising him, take away his limitation, for if the divine power be infinite, it must of necessity be unable to understand even itself, since that which is naturally illimitable is incapable of being comprehended. He made things, therefore, so great as to be able to apprehend and keep them under his power and control them by his providence, 
So also he prepared matter of such a size as he had the power to ornament. Now, this is a this footnote is, uh, you know, certainly it's a little bit hard to, you know, connect with the rest. And maybe that idea of providence in origin is not so different from our understanding of providence. If I, you know, I may have misapprehended it as being more of a reactive action, because this idea that he's able to keep them under his power and control them by his providence, that sounds exactly like, uh, and that's the last two lines there, that sounds a lot more like a strictly Calvinistic uh, picture than what we, what we have here. Uh, on the other hand, uh, 224, that, that footnote is not for the material that we read, it's for an earlier section of chapter nine. So perhaps I could read that other section another time. We could get into it in more detail. The point wasn't to read the entire of first principles to really to examine the section that Doc Wilson has quoted here and and just and see whether we can justify his comments. So perhaps in a future episode, let me uh, let me check quickly to see their comments are here. Uh, uh, it did what God knew it would do, it hardened further, but it wasn't by necessity. Oh, I already talked about that. Uh, let's see. Okay, yeah, I don't see any other comments that need an immediate response, but I do appreciate that, uh, Jamie and Truth Defenders, that you're uh, watching. Thanks very much. Let's see. So, for future episodes in discussing Dr. Wilson's work, this page, we're, we're slowly getting through the section. The section began on page 65, and we're working towards 77, I believe. It's not a long section. It's only about 12 pages. But we're going through it slowly because there's a lot of material here, a lot that's covered by, a lot of that's asserted and a lot that, that needs correction as unfortunately we're seeing already. Then in the next section, we're going to be talking about, let me actually make this big again. We're gonna be talking about his comments drawn from the commentary on Romans, which is uh, an example of a text where if I'm not mistaken, the what we have, yeah. So this is at least part of that commentary on Romans the uh, the text that we have there is not preserved for us in Greek, at least not most of it. There, there may be parts that are preserved in Greek, but the majority is preserved only in Latin, and therefore we're going to have to be filtering it through that uh, that aspect. But as I said. Uh, the commentary on Romans, and then we're going to go back to first principles. You'll notice that here he uses, he cites it as principles 2, 9, 6, or 7. Here he cites it as P-Arc, but presumably that's because he's citing to a section where we have the Greek, and therefore uh, he's using the Greek title, but it's the same book. 
and then Celsius uh, against Celsius six sixty eight. My guess, without you know getting into it yet, my guess is that those will either be the same section or related sections. Some of uh, well, not that they won't be the same session, but they may be related sections. Uh, and then we'll see if that's enough to make one episode. If so, we can just leave it there. Otherwise, I guess we could continue down the page as well. But I think maybe those two sections, the commentary on Romans, and then the further discussion of Origen's response to Clement's teachings is something that we can handle. So. Let me check quickly to see what other comments are out there in the Twitterverse. I see that I have some notifications. Uh, yeah, well, so no, nothing directly uh, on this episode. That's fine. And uh, Facebook and YouTube comments should be showing up. I apologize to folks if they're not, your comments are not showing up. But I've gone for a little over an hour and made it through, well, what I was trying to make it through, which is basically two paragraphs of one page. Uh, it's slow going, but hopefully it's edifying to you. As I mentioned before, I'll reiterate now at the end of the episode, just because Origen said it doesn't mean we need to believe it. Origen is a brilliant author. He has lots of interesting things to say. I love a lot of the things he says about scripture in terms of scripture being the rule uh, by which we learn everything we need to know. And the fact that, that mistakes that heretics make don't come from the scriptures, they come from themselves. As I said, there's a lot of gems to be gathered from Origen's writings, but Origen himself has a lot of mistakes. And this particular point that we just explored today about God having uh, God's loving Jacob more than Esau on the basis of something they did in their pre-existence is an example of something that's just not right. I mean, that, that isn't sound doctrine. Uh, and I appreciate that it's Origen's attempt to reconcile what he sees as a problematic situation. And maybe that should uh, support the overall point that Dr. Wilson's heading for in terms of suggesting that Origen doesn't line up well with Augustine. But I think you need a lot. I don't think it's accurate to say that Origen denies salvation can be attained by one's own merit in that section. Um, if anything, Origen just reaffirms merit, 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 merit over and over again. And we will come though, because I think where we see some backing away from that might be in this discussion of justification by faith in the commentary on Romans. So before we come to a conclusion that the first sentence of this paragraph, this first sentence says, origin denies salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit. Before, he, uh, before we completely throw that idea out, let's see if it's uh, next time, let's see if it's supported by his commentary on Romans uh, 3 9. I, I, I don't recall if that's chapter 3, verse 9. I think not. I think it's the ninth section of section 3. But we'll, we'll, do, we'll do with it when we get to it. Uh, thanks everyone for listening, and I hope that you have a lovely rest of your Lord's Day.